0: This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom, an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. Follow him across Europe as he digs up clues from his past and uncovers his true identity. New episodes, Mondays at 10, 9 central on TNT. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message
0: on iTunes. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about films adapted for television, how both mediums compare to one another, and the latest season of Fargo. We hit some Andy. ice! <laughs> That's all. I mean, it could have happened to anyone. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at We're here this week, as usual, with TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hello, Matt. Giselle. How are you? Great. Margaret is unfortunately out sick this week, but we're very pleased to have RogerEbert.com managing editor and Vultures Fargo recapper Brian Tellerico with us here today.
0: Hey Hi Brian. guys,
3: thanks for having me. Hey, Brian.
2: Thanks so much for being here. It's
3: been a long time since we it talked. It has. We do not talk enough. At least, at least 15 minutes, probably. <laughs> That's right. <okay. laughs>
2: so, we were just having a little conversation about Twitter etiquette, and we thought we'd continue it on the podcast.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can it's, you
2: fill yeah, us in, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: just, I'm, I, I, we started, we were in the studio, and I was grumbling about this. The etiquette of Twitter is still obviously a work in progress but let me just tell you something that i don't like i don't like when you're talking about someone whether it's positive or negative and a third party decides to go find that person and tag them into the conversation anybody who's been on twitter for longer than five minutes understands that if you want someone to know that you are talking about them you tag them so therefore if you don't tag them it means that you don't necessarily want to involve them. Right. And and I, that's true for me. Like, I don't want to involve people that I'm talking about because it's awkward. If I want to pay them a compliment directly, I will tag them. If I want to criticize something they're doing, I'll tag them. But I really, really hate it when I'm talking about someone and some third-party person will come in and say, isn't that right, you know, Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, or whatever. Right. Like, if I wanted to frickin' tag Donald Trump, I would have <laughs> tagged him in the first place, you know, for crying out loud. It's like, it's it brings me back to high school or even middle school where you'll be walking down the hallway and somebody will come up to you in the hallway and go, You won't believe what so-and-so said about you.
2: And on Twitter, there's just no there's no rules it's the wild west out there it, it, it's
3: really it's, ridiculous it's like the wild west but it's like junior high wild yeah. right. west right it's
2: know? like that's the worst combination it, it is drugs at <laughs> a bar
4: Drunks at a bar yeah <laughs> in general if you're the third party think about your behavior that would be my yes. advice like I love when I'm having a conversation about a movie and someone will jump in with something totally random like man I hate Johnny Depp we weren't talking about that we have no idea why you would bring that into this conversation and et mention all of us like <laughs> how to act like you would in an actual conversation just yeah. a little bit if there's a conversation going back and forth if two people are talking Just because we're talking about movies doesn't mean we're talking about your favorite or least favorite actors <laughs> or movies or whatever I have a little third-party etiquette. I think that's a good phrase to keep in mind
3: Yes, Here. and also yeah, another thing this is becoming like a Twitter like ranting about Twitter thing yes. But but <laughs> another thing that happens is two people are talking a third person joins in a fourth person joins in everybody's staying on topic But at a certain point yep. one of the people loses interest and stops responding yeah. I think collectively everyone knows when that happens, and it's okay to tag those people out, because that yes. way, That otherwise you end up with, like, eight names, and there's room for two words to continue the conversation. Right, right. You right. know, and it's sort of like if the person hasn't participated in, say, four hours, basically, <laughs> if we continue the high school analogy, they've gone to the, they've gone on to their next class. That's
2: They're not right. standing right. in the hallway
3: talking to you anymore, so it's basically what you're doing is, like, you're yelling down the hallway after them to make sure they stay involved.
2: Margaret always just tweets unsubscribe when she wants to (laughs) tweet. Nice. I like to tweet blocked and reported whenever I'm
4: annoyed by something.
2: (laughs) All right. PSA over. Yes. (laughs) So we haven't talked much about film on this podcast (laughs) and because it's a television podcast, but this week we wanted to talk a little bit about film and TV as different mediums that we often talk about together nowadays. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about TV as the new film, and words like cinematic get thrown out. First, before we get into the question of how film and TV are different mediums and how they're similar, I wanted to talk a little bit about films we've seen adapted into TV shows. You know, we'll be talking in depth about Fargo a little later on the show. But this is something, it's not necessarily new, but we are seeing it a lot. We have Westworld coming up, The Notebook, Uncle Buck... Urban Cowboy, which I'm very excited about. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> they, I hope they said it at Gillies. Yes. Didn't they do Uncle Buck already? They I, well, I'm yes,
2: they that. did. Try they, they did, did it for one season and it yeah. failed. So they're trying again. Why not? Right. Maybe
3: right. maybe this will be a dark and yeah. gritty <laughs> reboot it's of Uncle Gilligan Buck. Uncle Buck. <laughs>
2: Apparently, they also did Fargo, or they didn't do it, but they attempted yeah. a pilot in 1997. Right, I heard and that. Glad they tried it again. But yeah. I think when we talk about book adaptations to film. We want everything to be super faithful to the book. Do you think the same holds true for, like, do we want Fargo the TV show to be just like Fargo the film?
3: Well, I don't, but I would say there's one caveat that I would introduce into this, which is sometimes the movie is not the original source. Like like I was just going down this list. Friday Night Lights is based on a nonfiction book by H.G. Bissinger. And that was made into a very good movie, and then and in turned into a very good television show. So there, were, now and we're. It was three originally
2: steps. a newspaper article. It was, wasn't it? yeah, <laughs> I think
3: so. And so we're, and yeah, a true we're, story there. Uh, Someone
2: a true story yes, too. At yeah. some point,
3: at some point, it was somebody's life. Yes. Right?
0: Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it gets very complicated. But I, I think the big things to bear in mind for people who make the shows and people who watch the shows is is this is a question of can the form of a television series sustain this concept and these characters, and that's always the trick.
4: I think people don't want it to feel. Cheap. They wouldn't want Fargo on the name of something just to grab the cone audience, but film and TV are so different They really can't be that loyal after a few episodes or a few seasons for example So I think the idea is almost more tonally in common with the film than loyal narratively. I think people like that idea That's why people like Fargo one of the reasons
3: right I'm in the uh, midst of rewatching a lot of older shows for this book I'm doing with Alan Sevenwall and uh, one of them is mash which of mm-hmm. course is based on uh, a film by Robert Altman, which in turn is based on a novel, mm-hmm. uh, and that so there now we're three steps removed, and it's remarkable to watch how MASH changed over the course of its I guess right. eleven seasons, whereas the movie was very uh, acerbic and even abrasive and very much kind of a almost like a raucous guy movie really like if i look back on it i'm, I'm a little shocked by how boorish yeah. and sexist it is and yeah. unapologetically show so like that's kind of the point of the movie i think it's a little too cavalier with how it examines that behavior but for the most part i wouldn't say that it's endorsing it mm-hmm. and then you get to the first one or two seasons of mash and it's definitely a boys club it's very sexist a lot of the women are not differentiated except for hot lips hoolihan but as the show goes along Not only do the women become deeper characters, the men become more sensitive. Like, I hate to use that 70s word, but it's accurate. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's a show about a bunch of basically really nice, complicated, (laughs) but basically really nice people. Which gives you some insight into the power that actors wield over shows that they're involved in. Right. But anyway, but that's a case where if you look at, say, any episode from the last one or two seasons of M.A.S.H. and then compare it to the movie you would go, What this really has nothing in common except right. for the setting in a MASH unit mm-hmm. in Korea and, and the names of a couple of the remaining characters who are still from the original cast.
1: Right.
4: Right. I think one of the reasons Fargo season two has worked as well as it has is because it's kind of distanced itself from the film a little bit. The first season was way more thematically common with the film, and now it's carving its own identity and raising new themes. And imagine what Fargo might look like in season four or five. I imagine it would be a few more steps removed. Every season of a TV show removes it a little more from its source material. Mm-hmm.
3: That's true. I actually, I interviewed Noah Hawley at this Paley Center event, and mm-hmm. uh, I joked with him that season three could be set even further in the past. And he said, yeah, we were thinking about 1620. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And he was joking, I think, but there was something in it. But, but, yeah. there, but, well, there was a glint in his eye as he said it where I, I, knew, I just knew that he was thinking, you know, that's not beyond the realm of possibility.
4: I don't think anything is at this point. How about future Fargo? <laughs> yeah. Future why why Fargo not? could I be mean, kind of awesome. I mean, we've got UFOs
2: yeah. in this <laughs> one. So. Yes. The Odd Couple is another great example of it. Yeah. I mean, that's a film that has, like, such sitcom beats built into it, so it makes it... A, natural fit for television
3: it it does i was actually reading some old, some reviews of the odd couple the film when it came out and there mm-hmm. were complaints that it was it was too much like a sitcom that happened oh, to be in the form of a movie yeah so it was a probably a very easy transition yeah
2: it was like at heart a tv <laughs> show anyways yeah yeah do you think certain genres are more difficult i mean we've seen like 12 monkeys for example that show didn't really take off scream shows that have like maybe a little bit more twist elements in them
3: I think Brian's point is a good one, which is the most successful shows uh, that are adapted from movies are ones where the similarity has to do more with tone Mm
2: -hmm. and
3: not with replicating or reinterpreting specific elements from the show. And I think the masterstroke of Fargo is to have really built it around a kind of a a generally Cohen-esque vibe. But even that is starting to fade. Like Mm -hmm. I was looking at this recent batch of episodes and I... There's not really anything that I would say is specifically Coen-esque about it, like in the the way that we think of the Coens and their movies. And if anything, it reminds me a little bit more of Breaking Bad, Mm -hmm. which is is itself Coen-esque, pretty heavily so in a lot of ways. They even had a couple of, you know, identical assassins in season three. (laughs) But again, that's a matter of like now we're in the realm of members of the same family tree and not, you know, they're maybe not... Twin brothers anymore. It's just, now we're talking about a cousin, and, and by season three or four, it might be a distant one.
4: Right. right. But season one is the bridge. I mean, season one. There's so much in common with the film, right down to specific characters. And to me, this season of Fargo feels like it has a lot in common with season one, which felt like it had a lot in common with the movie. So there's like a like you said, a family tree from right. branch to branch. So
2: one one more removed. Buffy is another. You know, a creator with a very strong vision I'm I'm sure also helps. Absolutely (laughs) and
3: there was no reason to expect and it really wasn't until I think season two that Buffy started to find its its own identity period not just an identity apart from the film. Totally. Um, But the movie I saw the movie in the theaters when it came out and I remember thinking, well, that was disappointing. <laughs> yeah, because so. and, and it wasn't that any individual aspect of it was poorly done. It was just it didn't add up to much. Yeah. And, right. and and I didn't like the jokiness. I didn't like the persistent jokiness and particularly the condescension towards the character of Buffy. Like right. there, was no, there was no meat on that character at all. But then once Joss Whedon got a hold of it, it became a whole different story. And again, this, you know, we keep coming back to Fargo, but this is clearly a Fargo-type situation where... Um, what does Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the show, have to do with the movie aside from the main character and the idea that there are supernatural creatures running around in the small town? Mm-hmm. Like nothing.
4: Right. To me, Buffy feels almost more like, "Hey, we screwed that up. Now let's get it right." <laughs> right. That's more of a like do-over.
3: Yeah, and you situation. don't see that often. You don't see that right. often enough where the where the a television show gets a chance to r- kind yeah. of redo or right the wrongs of a movie. Right. Usually, I'm not what sure we, I can
4: think of another example.
3: <clears throat> I, I can't really, and and you can't uh, usually you see the opposite, which is a perfectly good movie. Like the memory of a perfectly good movie is sort of you know momentarily soiled by a crappy television show. Like, like I think happened with Minority Report.
0: Why? Oh, yeah.
3: Why? Why? Why do we need that? It's so sad.
4: Yes, I would agree with that one for sure. And, and to be honest, there's so many of those, I think I forget them. Like, because they come in pilot season, they get canceled two weeks later, and they're gone. Right. And then someone has to remind me that they made an Uncle Buck 15 years ago. <laughs> Parenthood became something oh, different great. from Parenthood. the film. It Parenthood did. got richer film. and deeper, I think, in a lot of ways to a lot of viewers. But that was was largely because of time. It had the time to invest in characters and make people happy with them and feel like family.
3: Well, and also there was a considerable amount of elapsed time between the existence right. of the film and the existence of the first season of the television yep. show. Yep. I mean, so much time that I bet there are a lot of people who grew up watching Parenthood who, have, who may or may not have any idea that there was a movie with the same title. I think that's true. I'm,
2: yeah. I'm sure that's true. Well, we have a question from a listener who wants us to have a battle royale on film versus TV. (laughs) So we'll we'll get to that in a second. But first, a word from our sponsors.
0: This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom, an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. He's had many undercover personas, but which one is he really? FBI agent, wounded Iraq vet, or Russian gangster? Join the search across Europe as he digs up haunting memories and uncovers his true identity. New episodes, Mondays at 10, 9 central on TNT.
2: So Kyle, he directed us towards an essay that ran in Filmmaker Magazine a few months ago called TV is Not the New Film. And it was written to defend the relevance of film. The basic argument is that film as a medium is able to do things that TV is not. And amid this so-called golden age of television, he was positing that you know, film is not something we can replace with TV, that film, TV just can't do everything that film can. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Is film fundamentally able to do things that TV cannot?
3: Well, that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, But I bristle a little bit whenever this conversational topic is raised because I feel like it's it's a straw man convention for the most (laughs) part. Like, I don't know anybody. I mean, anybody who is any kind of a serious film or television viewer, anybody who is a filmmaker, anybody who is a film critic who seriously would tell you with a straight face television is, is a greater artistic medium than film. They would not say that anybody who would say that. I just think is dumb, and I think a lot of times these people don't exist. Their words have been right. twisted to right. mean something that right. they don't actually mean.
2: And I think that he's maybe reacting to the fact that TV is just a bigger part of the cultural conversation. Right.
3: Well, it is, and I think I think feature filmmaking has only itself to blame for that, at least at mm-hmm. the Hollywood level. Like, if they, if Hollywood mainstream cinema has become irrelevant, it's their own damn fault. Mm-hmm. And that and the exhibitors who make it a, kind of a, a pain in the ass to go see a movie for various reasons, but that's a, right. that's a whole other discussion. But I, I just don't see this idea that um, suddenly the culture, whatever that means, has decided that television is artistically superior to film is nonsense. No one is saying that. I'll tell you what people are saying. People who work in cinema, actors, actresses, producers, filmmakers, writers, a lot of them are saying that television is more hospitable to stories about grown ups and about plausible three dimensional human beings than right. Hollywood feature films, which is true by and large, very, very true. Mm -hmm. And anybody who works in feature films will tell you that it's true. That is a different thing from saying that television is artistically superior to cinema and has eclipsed it in some way.
4: I don't see the value too much in comparing the two. I don't compare, I, I read books for different reasons. I go to the theater for different reasons. I listen to music for a very different reason than I watch a film. Now, while we can comment on the cinematic quality of TV, these pieces always bug me from concept. Why does one thing have to be better than the other? Having said that, what bugs me more about them is, and this piece does this a little bit, it ignores two things. One, he sets up and they all do this. Yes, La Ventura is more challenging than two and a half men. They always take the most populous television and the compare. The stupidest against- television yes, and compare it against the most <laughs> challenging cinema. I get it. There are things that cinema can do that TV's not doing, but Let's talk about what Breaking Bad is doing compared to Transformers 2.
3: I was going to say, you know, Cop and a a Half versus Twin Peaks.
4: Yeah, exactly. So they always pick the best, and he does it a little bit. He, he, He picks the best of film and the worst of TV, saying that all TV is designed to make you a passive couch potato. That's simply untrue. That's in. Outdated way of looking at television. And it's reflected by the fact that most of his examples are Twin Peaks and when he worked on New York Undercover. So, yeah, we're looking at TV back in 1990, which is a very different time and a very different expectation of the audience. The other thing that I think is ignored in most of these pieces is that. For most people, especially young people, they're watching TV and film on the same devices and in the same way.
3: Yeah, They're they don't watching see, they things don't see on it. the same
4: phone, on the same screen, on the same laptop, on the same Hulu and Netflix. And we can't ignore what that's going to do in terms of creativity. I don't see the need to compare them and say one is better than the other. But I do think that that's impacting the way television is more cinematic than it used to be. Hmm.
2: He does make a few broad, sweeping claims mm-hmm. about what film is able to do that TV is not so for right. example he says that extended periods of silence are forbidden on TV I think that's is absolutely it? true
3: okay yeah. and in fact this, this um, piece and there are a number this is not the only piece of its type there, like there have been probably there's probably one of these pieces every three months <laughs> and I did a piece that was sort of in response to these pieces what is cinematic TV it was a video essay And I was attempting to define, in my mind, and it's only for me, it's not supposed to be, you know, dictionary definition that you can take to the bank or anything, but what I consider to be cinematic. And it's not something where they've thrown a lot of money at the screen and produced, you know, CGI, fake helicopter shots flying through kingdoms with dragons and shit like that. I mean, like, it's fine, but that's not, that in and of itself is not cinematic things that look like video games are not in and of themselves cinematic, and certainly scenes of people sitting in rooms talking where you're cutting amongst them is not inherently cinematic, although it can be if it's done really, really well, uh, as screwball comedies proved. But I do think that something that's, that is truly cinematic is telling its story in pictures, and, there, and it's telling it with sound, with music, with silence, and that's something that television is afraid of. And there's a third thing that I wanted to add, Brian, to what you were saying, which is Another thing that people fail to bear in mind when they talk about television versus film, and boy do I hate that word versus, mm-hmm. is um, television is much younger right. than cinema. Cinema has right. a 50- to 60-year head start in its development as an artistic medium over TV. So basically what you're saying is, you know, I, I'm telling you that I can, you know, I can beat my 12-year-old son in basketball well, that's nothing to brag about.
2: Right. Exactly. I'm
3: older. I am older and more developed than he is, you know.
2: And just because <laughs> television isn't necessarily doing certain things doesn't mean that it can't.
3: No.
4: Right. And just because the majority of it isn't doing it doesn't mean some aren't. I right. mean, you, if you look at some TV, you can't tell me Hannibal and the Americans and the Nick don't have a visual language. They very much do. And his argument would be, well, the more popular shows don't, so all of TV is, isn't worthwhile it, it's this general the broad generalization is a good term i hate that and that's what we see in all these pieces they use broad generalizations to make their thesis fit
2: he also talks about how tv is a writer's medium which matt you've you've talked about I agree with and that. how yeah. film film is a directors and that the direction needs to transcend the script in order for it to be called cinema do you agree with that
3: well i don't know about that i feel like that's partly a misunderstanding of a theory um but i would say it doesn't need to transcend it but it does have to add something Mm-hmm. And and merely illustrating the script, uh, which is something that a lot of writers would frankly prefer. Writers who who don't really understand how to tell stories in pictures, I think they would rather that they just slavishly illustrate whatever they wrote on the page, but that's not cinematic, and it's not even interesting. And you see movies that are like that too. Like I, I very often I'll go to a movie. For some reason, comedies seem to have more of a problem with this than than straight dramas, and dramas have more of a problem with it than genre films like horror or film noir. But what you're seeing is a series of people having... A series of scenes of people having conversations in rooms, at bus stops, on trains, in airports, and so forth. And it's just, you know, scene, 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 scene of, like, somebody sitting. Someone comes in and sits next to them, and they start talking for two minutes, and then the scene is over. And then we go to another scene of somebody talking. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is the most boring way to tell a story imaginable. And that's not to say that people talking can't be cinematic. There are a lot of great movies that consist, of nothing else, like My Dinner with Andre or Glengarry Glen Ross mm-hmm. or Vanya on 42nd Street, which I love and I can't stop recommending. But for the most part, it's just not—it's the path of least resistance, mm-hmm. you know, to deliver the information visually. But I think uh, the best television and the best films don't do that. They rely on a mix of verbal and visual storytelling for the most part. But I just think that its it's really, really, really— a lot of there's a lot of underbrush that needs to be cleared away from this discussion and the false dichotomy is right there at the front of it this idea that it's television versus film and that if in some way television has eclipsed film in the popular imagination that that uh, there's some sort of phony bill of goods being sold that television doesn't deserve that right whether television deserves its prominence in in the landscape artistically is is a discussion worth having but you also have to take into account what has cinema done in order to let itself be eclipsed.
4: Yeah, and my thing about all those talking movies you're talking about, I would add to this, is that most of the time they're saying exactly what they're feeling or what they're planning to do to keep the plot moving forward. Yeah, The, the movies you mentioned that are dialogue-heavy are more interesting about what's not being said or what they're saying instead of what they're feeling or what they're thinking.
3: Like the scene with uh, in Glengarry Glen Ross with Al Pacino I, and, and Jonathan Price in the bar where Pacino's trying to basically... Trying to get Jonathan Price to buy a bunch of property in Florida that's worthless, and the entire scene is set up as if it's a seduction scene, like he's like he's picking yeah. up Jonathan Price. Right. And Jonathan Price is a guy who normally would not let himself be picked up by a stranger in a bar, and he keeps saying, "I've got to ask my wife." And and all of this stuff is, is subtextual. <laughs> it's like it's there. It's sort of there in Mamet's dialogue, but a lot of it's in the way that James Foley shoots it. Yes. And like that's to me. That's cinematic. Exactly. That
4: element. Yes, dialogue is still a very cinematic tool when it's used right. I just feel like so much modern film and TV, because TV has to move you forward to the next episode, everyone's always saying exactly what they're thinking or what they need to do. Here's what I need to do to save the girl and win the day and stop the action movie from going forward. And here's how I'm feeling right now about that. I think that kind of dialogue is the biggest poison to all art. Theater. That's
3: kind of, the kind of dialogue that David Mamet once called, here we go Here we go yeah. down to the bottom of the staircase that we're trying to get to the bottom of. <laughs>
4: exactly. And you see that all the time, especially in action movies. Yeah. Let's all sit around again and talk about exactly what we need to do so the audience understands what we need to do as we move forward and do what we need to do.
3: <laughs> Although under certain circumstances, that kind of dialogue can be kind of great. Like yes. I, I, I was thinking of this only because I've seen, um, you know, Ash versus Evil Dead is fresh yes. in my mind because I just reviewed it, but I, I watched the original Evil Dead 2 again not too long ago, and there a scene where they got to go down into the basement and get those, you know, the book, the pages from the book of the Necronomicon out of the cellar where the monster is. And he goes, work shed. <laughs> and, and, and I've seen that movie many times. And I think it's only on this viewing that it occurred to me. That's pretty clearly that line is pretty clearly dubbed. I don't think think his lips are even moving. I'd have to go back and freeze frame it, but that looks like they add, like, I don't know why they need that when the very next scene is him going to the work shed. Just in case (laughs) case. you got
4: confused. I've been watching all the Die Hard movies again for a piece I'm writing, and those are filled with, now exactly where are we at here? What do we need to do next? Where are we going? They're still great because they kind of understand that that's what they are. They are little boxes like that and they need to guide you through them with McLean in front but he's always talking about what needs to happen next. Yeah, so. yeah.
2: I was watching rewatching Edge of Tomorrow yesterday which I just mm-hmm. love and yeah. it, I, it's super smart about that because, yep. because it's part of the plot in order to keep it moving forward and te- show you how things are happening over and over again. It's really right. clever about the ways that it does that.
3: Yeah. It's also great the way that movie tells its story in that it, part of it is contingent on and you know I'm not the first person to make this comparison but it's basically Groundhog Day yeah so Starship Troopers. It's amazing, you know? and and but the whole gimmick of he keeps getting killed over and over. Mm-hmm. I like how the first time he gets killed, it's rather drawn out, and the second time it's shorter, and then it gets to the point where it's like you don't even see him getting killed. Right. right. You and just then, know as soon as the monster pops up, it means he's died again,
2: and, and the, like mm-hmm. pretty soon they're not even bothering to show you that part. And then when Emily Blunt is having to shoot him when they're in training, he's just like, yeah. just do it. <laughs> like they just like they just ha- they just have him just they don't even like show you work like lead up to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing.
4: I think at editor- the Tomorrow is the most video game movie ever because yeah. it's essentially what a video game is. You keep doing it over and over again until you get to the end of the level. You die a hundred times and then you get to the end of the level and it's it, over.
2: It gave me a new appreciation for video yeah. games. <laughs> well, it's a, that's a
3: great. Exa- that's a that's a great. Actually, a great example of one medium finding a way to sort of absorb the properties of another medium yes. without mm-hmm. being boring about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Like right.
3: a lot of a lot of movies that are based on video games are simply tedious visual mm-hmm. r- rehashes of video games and, it, and you watch it and you go like I'd rather be playing the game. Right. But that's a movie that uh that doesn't have that problem. And I think is that actually based on a game? I don't think it's no. based no, on a comic. It's completely oh. original. Well, maybe just, well, maybe that's the yeah. reason why they got away with it.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah it just feels like a video game. It it's does. the same idea.
3: Right. Like the way the the original Matrix feels right. like a comic book, but it wasn't yeah. actually based on an existing comic. Exactly. Maybe that's the key. Make something that feels like an adaptation, but you're not actually adapting anything. Right.
2: <laughs>
1: we're
3: that's back the to where we started. It's
2: Trick the, your the, viewers. Comic,
4: little, <laughs> Literally, yeah. yeah.
2: So coming up, we're going to talk more in depth about the second season of Fargo. But first, we have a message from our sponsors.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, um, sounds like a no.
4: Well, we don't really know what this is. Voices, music, breathing... But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing.
1: To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
2: So... We've been waiting to talk about Fargo on the show, and yeah. I think we're all excited to finally be here. Um, this season is set in 1979 in Luverne, Minnesota, and it's got a huge cast of characters, lots of subplots. The main murder plotline is Ed and Peggy, a husband and wife, played by Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst, are covering up an accidental murder with one another of Kieran Culkin's character, which happens in the the premiere. First episode, mm-hmm. yeah who had just committed his own triple murder. So in this episode that aired last night, things really heat up. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the season so far, which has been really, I mean, I think it's gotten glowing reviews. People are saying it's better than season one, but it hasn't, the ratings haven't been great. It hasn't quite captured the culture in the same way that even season one maybe did, when I think Mm -hmm. maybe people were a little more curious about how they would adapt fargo mm-hmm. but yeah i i think just to bounce off of our previous conversation do you think people have less patience when it comes to tv than with film because you know this is a pretty the, the pace is a little slow you have all these different storylines going on action happens in little bursts and like little conversations that are very tense So I, I i'm curious what you think about people's patience for sticking with tv shows to invest that much time in them you know
3: I didn't know that, that the ratings
4: were not as good. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so
4: I heard they're disappointed. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is a hook, and I think... I, I watched the first four, and I said to my wife, I said, I don't think it's going to do as well because it doesn't have the strong personalities of Billy Bob Thornton
2: right? and,
4: and it, that those characters, those the, the three characters in season one, Molly and Lauren and uh, Lester Nygaard. Anyway, those three characters were... I think what a lot of the success of that first season was built around. I mean, they all got Emmy nominations. I think two of them won. This season is more diverse. There's like 16 speaking roles. There seems to be a new major character added every episode. And I do think that is challenging to some people. They don't have the Billy Bob and Freeman performances to latch on to and drive them home with and and talk about. Other than that, the people I know who have committed to it are invested in it. I I I don't know anyone that doesn't like it. Which is funny that the ratings are down, because I think the people who are watching it are into it, but for some reason, and it could be that, that Billy Bob Thornton is a bigger draw than Patrick Wilson. It could simply be as simple as that, that people aren't tuning in.
3: Well, that's possible, but I think also I have an alternate theory, which is Mm -hmm. that, and I wrote about this in my piece about season one. Season one had dude bro appeal, Mm. and it was mainly due to the uh, to the Billy Bob Thornton character, Mm -hmm. Lauren Malvo. Like dude bro, the dude bro audience,
2: cinema to dude bro. Yes, they like to see like
3: (laughs) seriously. They like to see people being being badass. They like to see badass characters who are in control, and tell and tell everybody else how it's going to be, and are invincible, and can get away with anything they want to get away with because it's an escape from whatever crap they're going through in their boring daily lives and and this was a big part of the appeal of breaking bad you know breaking bad it was it was really all about the fantasy of being walt like Walt was just this kind of milk toast middle american guy who got to be a badass and got to, you know, stand up with all these street criminals and go toe-to-toe with them. And that's like a fantasy for a lot of the people who, a lot of the guys who watch the show. And I don't think season two has that, there's no character who who, who has that fantasy pull. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. And also season one had some uh, uh, some misogyny problems, in my opinion. Like they were very mild compared to something like a true detective mm-hmm. um, but they were there, and and the only uh, I, I think the only Allison Tolman's character was the only really fully developed, three-dimensional female character in in season one, and that's not the right. case here. The women are much more important, and in fact, the closest thing to a main antagonist is a woman played by Jean Smart, who's right. the, you know amazing. the the de facto head of the crime family now that her husband has a stroke. So you know the combination of a more estrogen-heavy Mm-hmm. Uh, cast, um, and the lack of a, fa- a macho fantasy identification figure for the dudes, I think that accounts for a big part of what you're talking about. But also the scale and complexity of the show might have something
4: to do with it, too. I really think that's all very accurate. But even in terms of not dude bros, but female characters to relate to, Alison Tolman's character did become a favorite for a lot of people, and there's no one like that. As much as we like Gene Smart... And Kirsten Dunst, there, there's no identification there. I think that's a very good point. I, this yeah. season, So I,
3: they I might have lost some of, of the women,
2: yeah. Yeah, the is incredible across the mm-hmm. board, but you just want more of the ones that you love.
4: Are we also just dealing with changing times? I know a lot of people who, for a show like Fargo, wait till it's done and watch it all. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who have adapted the Netflix model of binge-watching, or at least over a weekend or a week, and are willing to say, hey, I don't need to see that tonight, I'll wait till... January and do it all in one big burst. I know a ton of people who did that with Saul and caught up with it at the end.
3: We'd better call Saul. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, I hope I hope so because that's a good show. Yeah. I yeah see, no, I, I know. Continue. And, and
4: hopefully, I think FX is committed to Fargo, especially given its ratings and it's like the awards. I don't think we need to worry about a season three not happening. The reviews are some of the best of the year and let's be honest Jean Smart's going to win every award she's <laughs> eligible for so that kind of stuff is important to FX
3: I sure now. hope so and Bokeem would buy
4: and oh, I hope yeah, get something amazing. too
2: I hope Kristen Dunst I think
4: Duns, is great
3: Kirsten
2: Dunst as well yeah. she doesn't seem to often get recognized for her acting which I think right. she's just played so many different types of characters she she's really fun so well. like nobody else mm-hmm. she's funny she plays
4: her hair like yeah. nobody else yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <her hair>.
2: she's, <laughs> she's got great she's... body language Yeah. speaking of which we have a clip from one of the tensest scenes in last night's episode where the sheriff, Lou, Lou Salverson, shows up at Ed and Peggy's house to give them a chance to confess to their to their crime and to help them, but they just stick to their story. Lou, I'm really trying to be straight with you here. We hit some and ice. <laughs> That's all. I mean,
1: it could have happened to anyone. Ed wasn't even speeding.
4: That man you hit, his name was Rye Gerhardt hit a tree, we told you.
1: I I mean we were arguing and Ed turned his head. It happened in a flash.
0: Rye Gerhardt. And his family hurts people for money. And they're coming. Maybe you're already. And my point is because I'm tired of talking if you did something,
4: you made a mistake, you panicked, you maybe covered it up, now's the time to say, right now, because we can still fix this. But if I'm right, that window's closing and you may already be dead. It's a great scene.
2: It's a great scene. I think Wilson's
4: doing great work this year, too, actually. Really good work. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's he's really, really good. You
2: compared him to Robert De Niro, I believe, in your review. I did. Yeah,
3: yeah, Robert De Niro playing young Vito Corleone in Godfather Mm 2, which is not a comparison I make lately. I'm, I really think he's great. I mean, I think he's that good. And it takes a lot of imagination to play a younger version of a character without just turning it into an imitation. Mm-hmm. Where you really feel like you can see how they're going to turn into that older version of the character, but it's not. But they're not just doing an impression of them.
4: That I said the same thing in the last recap. Yeah. That, that scene on the Gerhardt's front lawn, you can see the eye contact and the square jaw and the refuse and there's the two scenes back to back in episode three the gerhardt's lawn and the carriage typewriters with mike milligan and the kitchen brothers Prague rock band those two scenes <laughs> yeah lou basically i said in my recap you can see how he becomes older lou you can see that transition without any like show me acting going on
3: he's great he's really really great in this and and i i think it's you know this is a, gr- a terrific cast but i think he's He's the one that I, that I can't wait to see more of, like every single episode, because he's so subtle.
2: He's so subtle, and he, and he has the most development. Yes. I mean, you have his home life story, and, right. you know, he's kind of the center of that, all the drama is surrounding, in a way.
3: Well, and he's, in a way, he's kind of, you know, you can see how Allison Tolman's character in season one is, his, is clearly his daughter mm-hmm. and where it mm-hmm. came from. But also, there's something that links him to um, Marge in the film Fargo. Like in the way that Marge, Marge, and her husband in that movie were, sort of like Patrick Wilson's character in this one, where they're they're nice, they're nice, they're a little boring.
2: They're kind to one another. They're right.
3: kind to one another. They're not like flamboyant chatterbox characters mm-hmm. like most of the most of the other characters on the show. They're not like right. in-your-face, colorful. There is something a little bit bland about them, but their blandness becomes kind of fascinating when it's in, it, juxtaposed with all of the other types
4: that right. are around them. And they're both really good at stumbling upon to crime scenes and people acting (laughs) (laughs)
1: squirrely.
4: That's the Fargo through line. Both Marge and Lou just, hey, Mike Milligan happens to be here. We'll have a conversation. Or Skips happens to be at the judges' quarters. I love that about Fargo.
3: Bokeem Woodbine, I just got to say some more good things about Bokeem Woodbine, who's great. And I told him this uh, when I saw him at that Paley Center thing. The first time I remember noticing him was in uh, uh, Jason's Lyric, um, which Mm. was like 20 years ago. Oh, my God, 21 years ago. Um, And that was a crime thriller, a low-budget crime thriller set in Houston. And he did a Houston accent, like (laughs) an African-American Houston area accent that was so specific. And I'm from Dallas. And when I saw him I just thought that guy's from Houston. <laughs> I had no idea he was from Harlem originally. And and but I've seen him over the years play so many different characters from so many different parts of the country. And he's really very meticulous in the way that he he inhabits these characters and mm-hmm. you know, it's not just the body language, the accents and all that other stuff, but just like the just things he does with his face and the, and there's something about the way that he he messes with people on this show. It's oh, yeah. so we're, good. We're, but it's not, like, dour and sadistic and controlling. There's something very light about
4: it.
2: He, You oh, know, yeah. Noah Hawley annotated a scene for us, and he noted how Bokeem kind of sings his lines.
4: Rock County. It's like, what's that town on the Flintstones?
0: Is that where we are? On the Flintstones.
2: He brought that himself, you know. It's like he's singing a melody, so there's this lightness, and it almost makes it a little more menacing. But it oh, also totally. makes him way more likable too. He referred he's to way them. more
4: menacing than Dodd. Yeah. I mean, I think yes. that's one of the reasons those two scenes are back to back in episode three. You've got Lou facing off with Dodd, Dodd who literally puffs his chest out and mm-hmm. alpha males and acts like an idiot, and then he's <laughs> and then Lou confronts Mike, and Mike is not fearful at all. Like Mike sees a cop and goes, "I'm just, I like this guy. He's, he, I'm going to talk yeah. to him for a little bit." <laughs> yeah, he They're called. Very uh, different villains.
3: Bokeem Woodbine called the way, the specific way that his character talks. He called, I think he called it Milliganese
4: mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that. But yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating cadence. I can't, I don't even think I could imitate it if I had to.
2: <laughs> Betsy, played by Kristen Milioti, she's one I wish we could see more of as well. And I'm, I mean, we'll see what, what happens. Do you think she got the placebo or the? Knowing Fargo yes. it feels yes, like yeah. she definitely got I mean yes.
4: yeah. I, I said that in the recap too that uh, in knowing the world of Fargo, I'm ninety percent sure she got the placebo. So Yeah. Sad to say.
3: Well, we know the mythology and and, yes. and one of the one of the incidental pleasures of this show is watching them build out this world. Right. Mm-hmm. This world yeah. where it's like it's an extended universe, I guess you would say, if it was a comic book or or a science fiction property or something like that where all over the Midwest there are these little sort of petty crime stories going on right. and they're interlocked with there's organized crime and disorganized crime and law enforcement right. and all of these just regular civilian people who get pulled into it
4: and the skip being buried alive if you know your cones you're gonna flash back to blood simple but you don't have to to enjoy that moment so little things like that
2: Noah holly said in an interview with us he, he said something that totally frames the philosophy of the show to me, which is that polite societies are often the most violent because people don't know how to bend. They just break. And that feels like such a perfect encapsulation of every reason why things go wrong for for people who otherwise could get out of the situations very easily.
3: I think that's very true and there's in fact there's an exchange I believe there's an exchange in one of the episodes to that effect where this mm-hmm. this idea I think it might be as a Bokeem Woodbine's character who says it this
2: right the, when they're at the outside the car
3: you know the bland mm-hmm. the idea that you act polite
2: mm-hmm.
3: you act polite but you're really
4: oh that's in the carriage typewriters with Lou right it's not that you're you're not friendly. You're very unfriendly, but it's the way that you're unfriendly.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unfriendly in a friendly way. Right. So. Well, that's very true, and that's a Midwestern thing. That's mm-hmm. a Midwestern yeah, thing. Nice. And like I'm from I'm from Dallas by way of Kansas City, and that's something like the middle part of the country and the former Confederate states have mm-hmm. down to a science. <laughs> like that kind of indirect assholeism is something that's very very polished. It's very distinct. It's not like the New York way of being a jerk.
4: Right. No, it's very. I love different. that Mike is is personified sort of as being from the south he's got a bolo tie like, like <laughs> if you think about it Kansas City is the south for Laverne Minnesota
3: I guess that's kind of true yeah
2: alright that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com we'd like to thank Sam Dingman Henry Malofsky Sarah Abduraman Laura Mayer Andy Bowers and Brian Tellarico for being with us this week The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Gazelle Amami, and you can find me on Twitter at GazelleFint.
3: I'm Matt
4: Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me
3: on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz.
4: I'm Brian Tallarico, and you can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Tallarico, T-A-L-L-E-R-I-C-O.
2: Thanks for listening.